When Bart and Krista Halderson were reported missing on July 7, 2021, a wave of concern for the couple flooded the village of Windsor community in Dane County, Wisconsin. Bart was 50, a certified accountant for BDO USA. Krista, age 53, was a receptionist for Zimbrick Automotive. They enjoyed their jobs, spending time outdoors, taking vacations at their cabin near Sawyer Lake, supporting the community, and attending Badgers games. But most importantly, they loved their two sons. Family was everything to them. 25-year-old Mitchell and his younger brother, 23-year-old Chandler, were worried when they hadn't heard from their parents in several days. Mitchell worked as a tech rep and lived in nearby Madison, Wisconsin, with his fiancée, Caitlin. Chandler lived at home. He was a hard worker with a longtime girlfriend named Catherine. He was about to graduate from Madison Area Technical College with a degree in renewable resource engineering. He had a stable job at American Family Insurance and would soon be moving to Florida to work for SpaceX. In his spare time, he worked with Madison Police as a scuba diver on their rescue diving team. The men had bright futures. Mitchell had a wedding ahead. Chandler was moving away, and lots of family memories were yet to be made. The family had grown closer in recent months, as both Mitchell and Chandler had gone through tough times. Mitchell had been hospitalized and diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and Chandler had recently suffered from a fall down a flight of stairs, leaving him with a serious concussion. He claimed the injury was inhibiting his ability to walk and had possibly caused spinal damage. He was even forced to wear a neck brace for several weeks, and he said the fall had severely inhibited his ability to move. But on the morning of Wednesday, July 7th, a grave reality would hit the brothers. Chandler would walk into the Dane County Sheriff's Northeast Precinct at 11.15 a.m. to report his parents missing. He told the deputy that he hadn't seen them since the night of Thursday, July 1st. They had made plans to visit their beloved cabin near Sawyer Lake and were to leave early Friday morning. The couple wanted to do some repairs while at the property, fixing a water pump and fire pit that had recently been damaged by a storm. Chandler even helped pack up the necessary supplies for the trip, including a pipe wrench, a hatchet, and gas cans. They had left for the trip before he woke up on July 2nd. Chandler added that the couple had been picked up by friends that would be accompanying them to the cabin. He was unfamiliar with the couple and couldn't provide details or names to the deputies. He assumed, however, that he would hear updates from his parents, as he always did. But the trip up to the cabin seemed far from planned. Krista was scheduled for work that Friday. She would never bail on her coworkers or her job without notifying someone. A coworker of Krista's spoke with the local news station WKOW saying she was a model employee. They recalled that she had missed at least one workday without calling in that week and said it was completely out of character. Chandler also spoke to the same news outlet. He said he last heard from his mom on Sunday, July 4th. 
He said Krista had texted him to let him know that they were now going to attend a 4th of July parade in the village of White Lake in Wisconsin. They planned to be back home on either Monday or Tuesday. I don't know when the text was sent because of reception issues that they would have, and they usually turn their phone off because of pay for roaming. Yeah. Um, we, they, it could have been whenever they sent that message that they made it safely, and they're going to White Lake for the 4th. But although Chandler was worried, he said, we'll find them. It's better to not listen to the negative theories. They're maybe at a casino, their phones off, no reception. Maybe they're on a boat, having some fun with their friends. But were they? This is Jillian, and in partnership with Law and Crime, you are listening to Court Junkie, episode 198. When she didn't arrive to work on Friday, July 2nd, Krista Halderson's co-workers at Zimbrick Automotive grew suspicious. They decided to go up to the Halderson house to make sure she was all right. 4595 Oak Spring Circle had been the Halderson residence since the summer of 2016. A beautiful home with a perfectly manicured lawn that Bart Halderson took pride in. From the family dining room table, a large outdoor patio deck stretched out towards an expansive pond. It was their slice of paradise. When Krista's co-workers arrived that morning, they knocked on the front door repeatedly until it swung open. Standing in the entryway was Chandler, fresh out of the shower, with a bandage on his toe. He told them exactly what he had told police. His parents had left for the cabin. And that bandage? Oh, he had cut his toe on some glass from the living room fireplace. He had been playing ball with the dogs and accidentally shattered the glass cover. He added that there was blood everywhere inside because of his injury. His story would soon take an even more eerie turn. Upon visiting the Halderson home the following week, on the night of Wednesday, July 7th, detectives saw that both Krista's and Bart's vehicles were still in the garage. Chandler said they had caught a ride with the unidentified friends he had mentioned earlier. And I, I assumed it was someone I was aware of, like the close neighbors of theirs up the street or um, their best friends down on the east side. So that's what I assumed. I never really asked any further in it, into it. And so they got picked up and they all went up there by like another couple. I mean, that, that has happened before where they just kind of head out before I leave or I wake up. You know, I'm heavy sleeper. Mm-hmm. I, I'm on a schedule. I wake up at six to feed the dogs and they were out before six. Investigators asked Chandler about his toe injury, as well as some visible blood found by the fireplace. He told them the same story, the dog playing ball, a broken fireplace door glass in his toe. Meanwhile, Mitchell's messages and phone calls to his parents went unanswered as well. Later at trial, he described his mother as a helicopter parent, saying she would use any excuse to call him and check in. For them to go to the cabin on a last-minute trip and not notify him was more than odd. It was alarming. And that 4th of July parade in White Lake the couple was set to attend simply didn't exist. This was just the first layer of untruths that were about to unfold in the days ahead. 
By July 8th, Mitchell Halderson had grown so nervous about the location and safety of his parents that waiting at home for his messages to be answered or for the phone to ring was unbearable. What led you to be being so concerned? Not having heard from them, not being able to get a hold of them, and not being told that they had gone up there to begin with. So during this time period that you learned they're missing, did you reach out to your mom or dad via text or phone calls? Yes. Did you hear anything back? No. And did that concern you? Yes. He and his fiance jumped in their car and made the three-hour trip up north to the family cabin. It was there that they met up with the Langlade Sheriff's Department. The group made multiple laps around the property, finding nothing out of the ordinary. When Mitchell attempted to open the cabin with his set of keys, the door wouldn't budge. He gave deputies permission to enter by force, and once inside, there was nothing. At any point, obviously, you did not find your parents up there. No. Did you find any signs at all that they had been there? Nothing looked like it had been used. There was a couple pieces of trash around, but I believe that's just because sometimes people will walk through the property on the way either between properties or just in the way. Either way, I do not believe it had been used anytime recently. No sign of his parents and no sign of anyone having visited the property either. It was another dead end. Investigators began interviewing close family and friends as critical hours passed by. Among those on the list was Chandler's girlfriend, Catherine Mellander, her mother, Dulce Mellander, and her mother's girlfriend, Crescent Lasai, who went by the nickname Cal. Catherine had been dating Chandler since 2019, and she lived on her family's farm in an area close by, known as Cottage Grove. She was planning to move with Chandler to Florida. In preparation for the move, the two had rented an apartment together and purchased a car. Catherine told investigators that she had spent the whole weekend with Chandler, except for the morning of July 3rd. She recalled getting up early that Saturday morning and trying to meet up with him. He replied that he would be busy doing chores all morning, and so she continued about her plans as normal. At one point, she checked her Snapchat to reply to messages. On the map feature of the app, she saw Chandler's location, his avatar nicknamed Hubby in her phone. He wasn't at home. Instead, the app indicated that he was near Roxbury, Wisconsin, a few towns over, in the woods. She found this so odd and out of character that she took a screenshot of it, not knowing then that later it would be submitted as evidence. Catherine's mother's girlfriend, Cal, also had something interesting to tell police. She remembered Chandler coming over with Catherine for a 4th of July celebration. But to her surprise, Chandler came back the next day unannounced on July 5th without Catherine, driving his father's vehicle. He parked it near the shed and asked to use the family pool for a while in a form of aquatic therapy for his injury. Cal agreed. She remembered Chandler was acting strange. He seemed distraught. What did you guys talk about? Well, um, he was telling me about his accident. He said he was at a doctor's appointment. And so he was talking to me about what the doctor had said and what was going on. Did he tell you when that appointment had been? I don't remember. Okay. 
Um, what did he say occurred? Well, he told me that he had like damage and I asked him where, and he said in this area of his head, in the back of his head. And All right. That, so you put, you put your hand right yeah, above he, the top of your neck. Back here, yeah. Okay. The back of his head. And he's, did he elaborate on what that damage was? Well, he said it wasn't good, that they might have to do some surgery or something, and that he said he was having trouble like with numbers, and he said he got lost. He had to use a GPS. He's just like said his mind was kind of messed up and wasn't thinking so well. Chandler told Cal that after getting the negative news from his doctor, he now wouldn't be able to travel to Florida for orientation at SpaceX and that a rep from the company was concerned that his injury would affect his work. He was in danger of losing his dream job. They seemed concerned about you know, maybe not having a job and what was he going to kind of do? And I asked him, you know, would he talk to his parents? You know, maybe would he talk to them or, you know, things like that, just to try to reassure him because he just seemed upset about this news that he had gotten from the doctor. Sure. And what did he respond to that? To what? To, to I'm sorry, to talk to the idea of talking to his parents about his job and health. And he said, no, they're they're still up north. And and I just says, well, you know, maybe it would help you to talk to him. And his response is, he says, no, they'll just be mad. And which seemed odd to me why his parents would be upset with him that he was hurt and couldn't work. You know, it just seemed odd to me. After their talk, Cal proceeded inside the house to give Chandler time to be in the pool by himself. Hours went by, and then she decided to go check on him. Chandler was nowhere in sight. The cover to the pool was still on, and she could see in the distance by the shed, Chandler's parked vehicle was there, with the back hatch open. She assumed he had decided to go for a walk instead, and so she decided to get into the pool herself. As she swam, she saw Chandler return to the main property. He had walked out of the woods that bordered the shed. Later in the day, Chandler did get into the pool, but he appeared to be washing himself off in the water, Cal recalled. She added one more detail to her police statement before the interview wrapped. Vultures. She noted that vultures had been circling the woods on her property in the last few days. That was something, she said, that was completely out of the ordinary. With Cal's statement to police and no sign of Bart and Krista ever making it to the cabin, their vehicles left in the garage of their home hours away, and no contact from them in several days, investigators started to believe that Chandler knew more than what he was saying. On the afternoon of July 8th, three days after Chandler had gone swimming, investigators swarmed Cal's Cottage Grove farm. They were granted permission to search the property and retraced his steps from when he had visited. Half buried in the ground, near where Cal recalled Chandler parking his vehicle, investigators found what they were looking for. A human torso was buried under a pile of brush. The head and limbs had been removed, and all that remained was a cut-off set of cargo pants along with a black belt. 
bullet wounds riddled the back of the torso. A pair of scissors, a saw blade, and bolt cutters were also found in a nearby water tank. A tied-off bag of bloody rags was also found on the farm, in a Target grocery bag. Catherine Melander's name was printed on the outside. An SKS rifle was found in the shed. Meanwhile, back at his house, Chandler noticed several police cars parked outside. He called the local police department to see what was going on. A little confused. Uh, I got two squads parked right outside my house, and they're not really canvassing. They're just kind of sitting there. Is everything all right? Yeah, I mean, they're in the area doing canvassing, and they're also... Uh, probably doing a shift change right now, getting our second shift crew on around 3, 3.30. Oh, there's four now. Something going on that we need to know? Well, they're probably doing reports. They're probably doing shift change. You know, they've, they've been going around trying to get a hold of neighbors, so I'm wondering if they're in the area trying to catch people now that they're coming home from work. I'm not sure. I haven't talked to any of them in just a little while. Later that evening, as investigators set up for a long night of evidence retrieval at the farm, Chandler was called into the Dane County Public Safety Building to meet with Detective William Hendrickson and Detective Brian Shunk for another interview with police. The detectives grilled him on the inaccuracies of his timeline in the disappearance of his parents. They then turned the questioning to the blood they noticed by the fireplace the night before an empty bottle of hydrogen peroxide, and that random toe injury Chandler said he had sustained while playing ball with the family dog. He said his girlfriend, Catherine, had kindly brought over a Swiffer mop and hydrogen peroxide to help him clean up the remaining glass and blood. My blood was kind of on the floor, so I got the Swiffer I borrowed from Cat from the the foot. I borrowed a Swiffer to mop. I swiffered the the floor floor, like not the stone, but the floor. And then I got a little bit in the kitchen. And then everywhere kind of I walked, pretty much. The the bathroom, the kitchen, and then I I couldn't get the carpet, so I still stained that up, you know, crappy. Where was there a carpet at? The stairs between basement and kitchen. Carpet. Oh, that's right. Carpet stairs. Um, I tried. I can't get it out. I don't know how to do that, but um, then all the way up to my the laundry room where I found my first aid kit. I just tried to stop all the bleeding, but I, you know, it wouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. So and that blood was all coming from your left foot. Yeah, left foot hole. Chandler recalled his father's temper several times during the interview. When discussing how he had shattered the glass of the fireplace, he said his father got very upset and sent him to his room. The detectives asked if there was any reason why blood from either of his parents would be found in the home. Is there any reason to believe mom or dad's blood would be somewhere in the house? Have they been injured at all that you're aware of? Oh, my dad scratches his psoriasis till he, like, gushes blood. Okay. Gushing, um, describe gushing to me. Enough to run down your leg, like, um, like cover your leg, I suppose, like 
he is on his knee. So when he does this, it just like rips oh, down. Uh, I ask him to stop, but he doesn't do it when he's stressed out. Yeah. He, he just kind of like, it's his tick. He's, yeah, probably itches. Does he, um, like, does it enough to get on the floor? Does it leave? Oh, yeah. Uh, like, how much, like, before we were talking the water bottle lid and the Yeti lid, is there, I mean, like, are we talking puddles like that or just ribbons oh. or? It could be enough. Okay. But I'm thinking Yeti lid, if he's there and I don't catch him soon enough. Oh, jeez. My ma's blood, um, just from her bloody noses, she gets sometimes when she wakes up. Uh, that's why we've been doing uh, the dehumidifier, or humidifier and dehumidifiers. Yeah. Probably downstairs you get the... We, ha- we have to do multiple of them, but she can't be in the living room too long because that's a dehumidifier. Yep. And if she does, her nose gets bad. Not like a regular one. She gets it bad. Um, but she either goes to the kitchen to fix it, her vanity, or the bathroom. As the interview was being conducted miles away, investigators were at Chandler's girlfriend's farm, loading the remains of what they now knew to be an unidentified male body into a forensic fan. Back at the station, the detectives begged Chandler to tell them the truth. Look, you know what happened. We're not going to tell you what happened. You know what happened. You were there when it happened. We're not BSing you, okay? When it happened. We know more than you think we know. I understand. There's people that have told us things. We have have evidence. We have proof that more has happened about that. So your parents never made it to the cabin, and I think you know that. At 6.43 p.m., they formally placed him under arrest for providing false information to police regarding the disappearance of his parents. Once in handcuffs, Chandler began to plead with the detectives, begging for them to allow him to tell them everything. He insisted, you don't know the whole story. When Detective Hendrickson asked him if he was feeling suicidal, Chandler responded, I didn't feel bad about what I did. On July 11th, detectives executed a search warrant for the Halderson home, a process they said could take several days. On July 12th, the body at the farm in Cottage Grove was confirmed to be Bart Halderson. The autopsy confirmed Bart died of homicidal violence, including a firearm injury. It also revealed that he could have died anywhere between July 1st and July 8th. But there was still no sign of Krista. In investigators' eyes, she remained a missing person. Chandler was now in intake court. The state asked for a million-dollar bond, But because Chandler was not formally charged with any crime against his parents, aside from giving false information to police, the bail was set at $10,000. On the night of July 12th, Chandler was formally charged with first-degree homicide, hiding a corpse, and mutilating a corpse. The investigation continued for Krista. Detectives remained hopeful that she was still alive and safe. As the search intensified, local police remembered a phone call they had received on July 3rd, 
four days before Chandler reported his parents missing. A local resident who lived on the Wisconsin Department of Natural Recourses property had called the week prior to report a trespasser. She gave a description of the roughly 20-year-old man she had spotted, and she even provided the police with a picture. Looking back at it now, investigators realized the picture was of Chandler Halderson. On July 14th, over 20 law enforcement vehicles flooded the DNR property along the Wisconsin River near the town of Roxbury. Human remains were found, a leg and a foot. A local landfill had become a dumping ground for evidence, and that beautiful pond that could be seen from the Halderson's family dining room was now a potential crime scene. A Madison police cadaver dog had alerted to the pond days earlier, and investigators were now convinced evidence would be found there. They drained the entire pond, but only to be hit with another dead end. As they continued to comb through the Halderson family home, they discovered three additional significant pieces of evidence. Human skull remains were recovered from the fireplace, and two cell phones belonging to Bart and Krista were also found. The phones had been wrapped in paper towels and tinfoil, shoved inside a shoe underneath a shelving unit. By July 30th, almost two weeks after the discovery of human remains outside the town of Roxbury, the Wisconsin State Crime Lab identified the remains as Krista's. Chandler was hit with four more charges, first-degree intentional homicide, hiding a corpse, mutilating a corpse, and providing false information to police. He pleaded not guilty to all eight charges, and a trial was set for January 2022. As the community reeled over the news that Chandler Halderson had been charged with murdering his parents, more questions began to arise about the hard-working, soon-to-be college graduate. The world would soon learn that the young man with the bright future at SpaceX didn't have anything. There was no degree in renewable resource engineering from Madison Area Technical College. There was no job at American Family Insurance. There was no certification for scuba diving, and the Madison police had never hired him on their diving team. And perhaps most shocking of all, Elon Musk's company, SpaceX, had never even heard of a 23-year-old Chandler Halderson from Wisconsin. It had all been a lie. The trial began on January 4, 2022. More than 60 witnesses were called to the stand by the prosecution. Deputy District Attorney William Brown of Dane County, Wisconsin, gave their opening statement. He laid the case out bluntly for the jury. Chandler Halderson killed his parents, dismembered their bodies, and hid them all around southern Wisconsin. Prosecutor Brown said that Chandler was so brazen, the very day he was arrested, he was on the internet attempting to see if any news had broke about his parents' case. But while he's doing this that morning, what's he Googling? This is what he's Googling. Body found Wisconsin. Woman's body found Wisconsin. 
Wisconsin dismembered body found. We'll come back to the next two. Dead body found in Wisconsin. Body found in Milwaukee River. He's searching for whether they found his parents. Prosecutor Brown told the jury that Chandler never worked for American Family Insurance and that Bart Halderson, an accountant, grew more and more concerned about his son's financial state. How was he going to afford his move to Florida? Chandler's family believed he had been working for months with American Family Insurance, but hadn't once received a paycheck. Chandler excused the delay by telling his father that the company accidentally listed him as an hourly employee instead of salary. Weeks went by without a change, and Chandler gave another excuse. He assured his father that the money was being deposited. He had just accidentally given them the wrong bank account information. After months of no paycheck, Chandler concocted another story. He said that because the company had messed up, his first paycheck was going to be so large that the bank thought it was fake. They would now have to investigate it before handing over the funds. Bart remained on Chandler's case about solving the salary issue. Chandler would forward emails to Bart that he had sent to the HR rep at American Family Insurance, a man named Tom Selznick. The emails explained the same story Chandler told. But Tom Selznick wasn't an HR rep at American Family Insurance. In fact, Tom Selznick wasn't a person at all. Chandler was emailing himself from fake accounts. As he continued his web of lies, Chandler pretended he had a job, waking up each morning for early meetings and hopping on important team calls. But in reality, according to Prosecutor Brown, he would spend the entire day playing video games. While playing one of his favorite games, he began to talk with another player through the game console's messaging system, a man named Andrew Smith. The two would grow close, bonding over their mutual love of the game and guns. They met up about a month before Bart and Krista went missing. Andrew traveled to the Halderson home and brought a gift for his new friend a Russian SKS rifle, a favorite of Chandler's. This SKS rifle would later be found in the shed on the Melander property. It had been used to shoot Bart in the back multiple times. Prosecutor Brown told the jury that Chandler's lies would soon become entangled. His start date for SpaceX was looming, and he was slowly backed into a corner. June 14th was supposed to be his first day on the job, and he would have to be in Florida after his remote training ended. What was he going to tell his parents, Prosecutor Brown asked. What was he going to tell his girlfriend, Catherine, who was preparing to move with him? But then he took that nasty fall. It landed him in the hospital just a week after his brother was admitted and diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Chandler told his family and friends that doctors advised him not to drive and to avoid air travel. The SpaceX dream was quickly slipping away. As the paychecks never arrived, Bart was more and more worried about Chandler graduating to keep his start date with SpaceX. To reassure his father, Chandler gave him the number of his academic advisor, Daniel Spythe, 
who was more than happy to jump on the phone with Bart to discuss his son's progress at MATC. Bart and Daniel spoke, and Bart was reassured that his son was on track to graduate on time. Only one more class was needed. Bart got off the phone and couldn't help but note how similar Chandler and Daniel sounded. He even emailed Krista about the exchange afterwards, noting the similarities. After the call, something obviously didn't sit well with Bart, prosecutor said. He called MATC himself days before his murder and asked questions, posing as Chandler. He asked if any of the employee names Chandler had given him were real people. The rep confirmed that none of them worked there. Bart then sent a text message to Chandler to tell him that the jig was up. On the day of the murder, Bart had scheduled a meeting at MATC with an advisor and planned to take Chandler along with him. But, Prosecutor Brown said, Chandler couldn't let that happen. On July 1st, hours before the meeting was set to take place at 3 p.m., Chandler texted Catherine, quote, I overheard that they might go to the cabin with their friends, but IDK. This, Prosecutor Brown said, was the moment Chandler knew he was going to kill them. The prosecution's opening statements lasted over an hour. The defense spoke for just 13 minutes. State public defender Catherine Dorrell told the jury that Prosecutor Brown was pushing a false narrative as to what happened with Bart and Krista Halderson. At the end of the trial, she promised, the key question would remain as to who was truly responsible for the brutal killings. The role of being a juror is a different role than being a person. And that may sound strange, but it is. I think of when I went to law school way back in 1991, and there's a big part of me that feels I went into law school a human being who lived my life feeling things emotionally and relating to things emotionally. And I left law school a really different person. I learned how to be very logical, to apply facts, first to assemble facts, and then to apply these facts to the law as I learned it. Facts, laws, and rules, plus logic. That's your role here as a juror. Don't assume anything. She encouraged them to use the logical part of who you are to come to a just and right verdict. One of the first witnesses for the state was Mitchell Halderson. Describe what was your dad like as a parent, just very briefly. Well, he worked a lot, so slightly absent during the time, but... I would say had good expectations for us and overall was a good parent. How would you describe your mom as a bit of the typical helicopter parent, very involved in our everyday lives, but again for the because she cared. He recalled his brother's love for Russian guns, including the SKS rifle. He recounted a bizarre gift that Chandler had given him during his hospital stay when he was diagnosed with diabetes. And in fact, during your um, illness, your brother gave you a gift. 
Is that fair to say? Yes. What did he give you? A unknown type of bullet with the words get well soon on it. Like everyone else, Mitchell was also under the impression that his brother was holding a stable job and would soon graduate. When he was arrested in July of 2021, were you under the impression he was still working at American and Family? I was. What, if anything, did you believe about your brother Chandler's schooling? Believed he had not currently graduated yet, but was attending online classes at MATC. Uh, And what did you believe he was studying? Renewable resource engineering was the general consensus I had. Did you have any um, knowledge about when he was scheduled to graduate or? No. Okay. Chandler's girlfriend, Catherine Mellander, testified that she too believed Chandler had a job that was dragging their feet in paying him. There was something going on with who American family would go through for payment that it just, the check went to the wrong address and then it had to be canceled and then. He tried setting up for direct deposit and something happened with that. And then the amount that they had to pay him was too much. So they didn't believe they owed someone that amount of money. And then it just wasn't getting to him. She testified that she believed their time as a couple was limited because Chandler was frequently on call as a scuba diver for the Madison police. Were there ever times where Chandler would go to that job as far as you knew or need to schedule time to be there? Yes. Um, how would that come up? He would just tell me he had to be on call days and we couldn't hang out those days or he would only have select time to hang out or else he'd be on call. So there'd be times you couldn't hang out because he'd say he was on call? hmm Catherine also recalled being the one to pay for things often in the relationship. Chandler seemed to always be low on money. She confirmed that his injury from his fall seemed significant. He um, was running and slipped uh, down the stairs and then fell pretty hard and hit his head. Um, Did Chandler talk to you about his injury? Yes. Um, What kind of symptoms was he reporting that he was feeling after that fall? Um, tingles in his legs, um, sensitivity to light, uh, severe headaches, weakness. Was Chandler able to physically do normal things around that time? No. What do you mean by that? He had a hard time lifting things and quite often would get lightheaded. Could he carry heavy things from what you observed or knew? No. Um, Could he drive long distances, things of that sort? No. Was he able to travel? No. Um, Why do you know that or why do you say that? Um, Because of a head injury and wearing the neck brace. According to multiple neighbors, the Halderson fireplace was used over the 4th of July weekend. They could smell it throughout the neighborhood. It was odd, several recalled, that on such a hot weekend, someone would be using their fireplace. Prosecutor Brown detailed to the jury how Chandler tried to dispose of his parents' lifeless bodies in the fireplace of their family home, piece by piece. 
The broken glass Chandler had stepped in, one of the panels shattered as he tried to control the flames. Forensics teams confirmed that a bloodied axe was found in the garage and that Chandler must have used the fireplace to burn the heads of both Bart and Krista, along with most of their body parts. Another piece of evidence found near the fireplace was a measuring tape. They concluded he must have used it to make sure all the pieces he was burning would fit. A human skull fragment, along with more facial bones and a kneecap, was discovered in the ash deposit tray of the family fireplace. Neighbors also testified that in the days following the couple's disappearance, Chandler went door to door, asking them if they had security camera footage facing his house, and most importantly, if he could have it. Somebody rang our doorbell. Um, I answered the door and then called Jay, and Chandler had was at the door and had just said, Hi, I'm Chandler from next door. Um, and we just said, you know, we're sorry about your mom and dad, you know. And he said, yeah, weird. Um, and I think the next thing he said is he was looking for help. So he was looking to see if we had seen anything, um, if we had surveillance cameras or ring doorbell. Um, I responded, no, uh, that we did not. Um have a ring doorbell and um and then i think uh, you know i think we kind of started asking maybe a little bit of questions what you ask um well i i know jay asked are you the one with the neck brace um because we had heard that um one of the kids had fallen and had a neck brace was in, in Jay had just mentioned, is that you or your brother? And he goes, no, it's me. And Jay said, do you need to wear that? And he responded, no. Um, and then he explained a bit about his parents, that somebody had picked him up. Um, and uh, he wasn't quite sure who had picked him up. One neighbor's camera caught Chandler approaching her front door. Hey. Hi, my name is Chandler Halderson. I live just down the road. Oh, yeah. You're the one with all the police. Yeah. I was looking at the fancy security system. I was wondering if you were able to capture the road or my house. Um, the, uh, the police actually came and, and downloaded everything they have. But it, it's actually my sister's house. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they were here, I think, till like 9 o'clock last night and downloaded all the video she's got. So we're hoping that... Yeah, did it capture anything on... We don't know. We don't know. They just took a copy of everything, and so we're hoping... Lining the lens. Yeah, and it's all HD. Yeah, and it's all HD, and then I think there's one... Um, Especially in the dark. It looks like it has a little bit of night vision. Yeah, and there's one on the... Uh, the corner of the garage, too. On the video, a nervous-looking Chandler begins to move around the woman's front porch, as though he's trying to understand the angle of the camera pointed towards his street. Nervous, perhaps, that something significant might have been captured. The defense didn't call any witnesses, and on January 20th, 2022, 
After just two hours of deliberations, the jury found Chandler Halderson guilty of murdering his parents. A victim impact statement from Chandler's grandmother read, I love him, even though what he did was horrific. Mitchell's fiance, Caitlin, read her victim impact statement, simply saying that Chandler had robbed them of her future mother-in-law and father-in-law. She would miss them every day. She also stated that she and Mitchell wouldn't feel safe if Chandler ever had the opportunity to one day be paroled. On March 17, 2022, Chandler was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He spoke for the first time during his sentencing. Your Honor, I want to take this opportunity to state my intent to appeal my convictions. If there are any lawyers listening and willing to take on my appeal, take a moment to please reach out to me. It's not that I do not have feelings. It's that I was warned to not show them due to the scrutiny of this case. Thank you. And that's all for this episode. As always, I'd love to know what you think about this case. You can let me know by joining the conversation on Instagram at Court Junkie, by tweeting me at Court Junkie Pod, or by emailing me at podcast at courtjunkie.com. This episode was researched and written by law and crime staff. To listen to these episodes without the ads or to hear additional Court Junkie bonus episodes, please check out my Patreon options at courtjunkie.com slash support. And one more thing before I go. I received some pretty awful news about a valued listener of mine and fellow Court Junkie. His name is Chris Blake, and he and his girlfriend Emily were in a very tragic accident over this last weekend. And he is currently facing a very long recovery in a hospital in Massachusetts. I want to send my most sincere get well wishes to Chris. I wish you the speediest of recoveries and hope you get well soon. In the meantime, I'm going to continue cranking out these episodes for you so that you have a lot to listen to when you're up for it again. Get well soon, Chris. And thank you to your wonderful girlfriend, Emily, for bringing this to my attention. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.